You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Mort Sieben and I, Nils Kastrolasen, are back with this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series, which is our weekly ongoing raw exploration of the world of rules-based investing. And of course, where we also take some of your questions. But today we're going to deviate a bit from our usual format because we are delighted to be joined by a very special guest, Mark Resensinski. And I probably got that not quite <laughs> perfect, Mark, but you'll you'll correct me from Amphi Research and Trading, true legend in our industry. And I'm sure a lot of you are already familiar with Mark and his blog. So let me stay, start by saying welcome to you, Mark. And uh, it's great to have you here. And of course, also good to have you, Moritz. Thank you. Really happy to be here. Hey, Niels. Hey, Mark. It's been a long time in the making. Very, yep. very glad to have you on. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, uh, we are, of course, uh, very much look forward to diving into uh, a lot of topics with you. And uh, not least because you've been in the trenches for for a few decades, but we normally do kind of a quick review of the past week from the lens of a trend follower. And so while you may want to have an extra sip of your coffee while we do that, we'll quickly go through some of the highlights. It shouldn't take too long. So, Marge, just as a quick market wrap from my side, I mean, despite the equity markets finishing the week on a down note, you can't really argue that if you look at the price level in isolation, you think the economy is doing great. That's kind of the story the equity markets are telling. But then bonds are telling quite a different story because I noticed that Friday morning, the five-year treasury yield sank to an all-time low of just 0.255%, hardly above the Fed's overnight funds rate, which is somewhere between zero and 0.25. And then the nominal 10-year yield is uh, touching 58 basis points, which is pretty close to the all-time low of 49 pips in March, I think it was. And then the real yield, so the nominal yield, less the 10-year Treasury inflation-protected securities, has fallen to negative 92 basis points. That's actually the lowest level on record going back to 1996. And then, of course, combine all of this, we have uh, gold closing in on a new all-time high. So... Two different stories. We don't know really who is going to be um, proven right. Normally, they say that the smart money is the bond market, but who knows? This time might be different. But uh, how was your week, Moritz? A down week, but an interesting week nevertheless, even though, like you probably suggest, not not too much movement compared to the weeks before. Um, you know, when I looked at the equity markets, I think the S&P probably made a high on Wednesday, then I had two down days, uh, probably finished the week a little lower. I didn't look at the numbers, but it felt like it. So not too much to see there, but in, in terms of the bond market, because you've just mentioned that, yes, yields are moving lower. They're moving lower across the boards. There has been another central bank lowering rates this week. Not that we, I don't know, I don't want to say we don't care, but it's been Russia. I think Russia is now at 425. So mm. this is massively high compared to the ECB and the Fed, but 25 bips down for Russia. We have mortgage, long-term mortgage rates at the lowest ever in the US, I think, but definitely also in Germany. So if people wanted to buy a house and have that financed, this is, I don't want to say this is a good time to do it. Maybe in a couple of weeks, uh, the, the rate's going to be even less. Who knows? But uh, it's 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 a new all-time low. So in terms of the portfolio, lost about half a percent. 
I'm down for the year about three and a half percent or something like that. There's really only been two winning positions that I had on, like, you know, significant winning positions and all the other stuff has just been noise and essentially been flat and that's been gold and silver. So not surprisingly, and especially silver, because, you know, silver has just shot to the upside, massive breakout trading north of 22. Yes, it's it's the volatile, the very volatile cousin of the gold market, as some people say. Not sure that is true, but when you look at the chart, I mean, those silver moves, as, as we know, it's it's always kind of like been like that. They're volatile in both directions, to the downside and to the upside, this time to the upside. Luckily, I've had a long position on, I guess, probably uh, most of the trend-following funds would have had a long position on. And we enjoyed that. But um, like I say, the other market's kind of kind of boring. Yeah. I mean, very quiet week for us as well. Very similar performance uh, on our side as to what you mentioned, which, by the way, we may come to a little bit later because it seems like both you and and we are um, underperforming our peers this year so far, at least when I look at the industry. But but we'll get to that maybe. But on our side, really, coffee, yen, Nasdaq were the main losing markets. Gold, corn, US, 30-year bonds were the best markets. And we did actually see some meaningful movement uh, in the market this week. It just happens that a lot of these moves were kind of uh, offsetting each other. So net-net, not a lot happened. And uh, as I've mentioned before the last few weeks, I mean, our overall portfolio risk is incredibly low, probably the lowest that I've seen. Not the lowest we've seen in if we go back and we look at kind of research data, but it's really low, um, about 25% of our maximum. So... We're certainly not identifying any, or not a lot of, of, of long-term trends to get ourselves excited about. That was a quick market wrap. So Mark, perhaps I want to do something a little bit different with you today, because I do think you have a fantastic story background, and maybe not everyone that listens to our podcast today are familiar with with you. So I would actually love to hear a little bit about your journey to where you are today. Of course, I'm particularly interested in your uh, in about your decade that you spent with John Henry, or I should say John W. Henry as president of the firm, uh, which of course is a legendary CTA firm. So yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit about your way to where you are today, and then we'll dive into some, some exciting topics. Sure. I think let's start with how did I get involved in futures markets? And I grew up in Chicago, and I had an opportunity to work down at the Board of Trade. And I don't know the first time you went to the uh, to the visitors gallery at the Board of Trade. You take the escalator up, you look across the pits, you see complete chaos. You see all these people yelling, screaming, colors all over the place, boards showing prices moving. And I think that people just have two reactions: either they're revolted by this and said. Let me turn around and get out of here because this is no way for anybody should uh, it should work. The alternative is is that I don't know what's going on here, but I want to find out more. Mm. And I probably sort of say that 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 has been my driving theme across my career is to say how do people make tough investment decisions in a complex world? And we could talk about this a little bit more later, but I but I think that will sort of say the path that I've always taken is to say, like, how can you be a better decision maker when you have a lot of uncertainty, when mm -hmm. markets are constantly changing, information is changing, flows are changing, what do you have to do? So, so that 
took me on to graduate school. I, I received my PhD in economics, was a professor for a number of years, came back, worked for the Mercantile Exchange right at, around the 87 uh, crash. Then, uh, you know, worked for a number of money management firms. I was the head of research at Fidelity for the fixed income bond area, very large traditional uh, money manager. And then from there, I, I worked with John Henry, which I think that it, it was a path, again, to sort of say, how do you deal with uncertainty? Because I'll say working with a large institutional money manager, what you're really focused in on is, is that you go into a morning meeting, you have a committee meeting, everyone gives their opinion, and somehow there's there comes a conclusion from all of this committee work. And I didn't really find that very satisfying. I think that there are better ways to make decisions other than the weight of discussion or debate in a committee. So the better debater wins the day as opposed to what may the evidence show. So having an opportunity to work with John Henry was uh, was just great way to be able to solidify my thinking, great way to apply quantitative tools. And I think we did a, a pretty good job of being able to raise assets, tell a story, and continue on uh, the great business he had. Now, I think that the one thing I could say say about John Henry is is that he did a fantastic job in the markets, and he had other passions. And so I think that he's a, it's, a, it's great for someone to be able to try other things in their life. And, and I think that his passion for baseball, his passion for sports, you know, led him in a different direction. So we parted ways. I ran a global macro uh, hedge fund using a lot of the principles that I, you know, I developed in, in the past, that ran a commodity fund of funds for a number of years. And now I think I'm slowing down a little bit. And so I have an advisory business where we advise pensions, other hedge funds, as well as asset managers on how to employ quantitative strategies and use different principles for better decision-making. So we've come full circle in the sense of running money to also now advising people on how to make better decisions. So, so we're still in this working on the same theme, you know, I'd sort of start 30 plus years ago. Yeah, no, I mean, it is a fascinating story. And of course, the, the you know, John Henry really was a legend in, in, in our industry. But what's really fascinating about him as well is that he's, he's gone on to have exactly the same level of success in two other businesses, both in, in baseball and now in European soccer with Liverpool crown champion for the first time in 30 years. It's quite extraordinary. And in a sense, it would be really interesting to figure out whether the secret to his success in the trend following world really has been or played a key role in in, in the success that he's built in, in sports. I don't know if you know anything about... Well, I, I followed it pretty uh, closely. And, you know, I was in the room when they closed a transaction for the Boston uh, Red Sox. But I can give you the secret for John Henry's success across a number of businesses. Sure. Okay. The secret is he's just tremendously focused. I've never seen someone as laser-like focused at the moment. He probably said more focused than any other individual at a given moment. So when he was looking at a table or chart of numbers when we were discussing our trend-following positions, is that he could look at pages and pages of number. He could find the one wrong number. And I think that for baseball, for Liverpool soccer, this is that his has a tremendous focus for details. And 
I think a lot of your listeners will say, like, oh, gee, that's the secret. That's just so hard to do. But in reality, I think mm. that he was able to accomplish that. Now, there's no question he's a very smart man, but I think that smarts is not enough to be successful. It's the focus that really uh, differentiates you from others. And I think that that's what really separated him or put him apart from others. Yeah, I think actually there's a book written called Either Focus on This or Whatever, which also became very popular. And, and, and there's no doubt that focus is incredibly important. I wanted to just jump off in, in terms of one question um, before Moritz has uh, quite a few questions as well. But you mentioned something in your in your introduction, which I think is this thing about you know, your curiosity about how humans are able to make tough decisions in an uncertain world. Because when I think of, if you think of the DNA of a person, of the humans, you know, how we are built. I mean, we're built for kind of instant gratifications. We have no patience. We don't like uncertainty. I mean, there are many things you can line up. And then you think about financial markets and being an investor and it's kind of complete opposite. You, you need patience. You need to be able to deal with uncertainty. So so where is that kind of curiosity? Where has that led you in terms of how we deal with this? We, we of course, know as an industry how we deal with it. We, we rules-based things, we systematize things, but just I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And I think that that's where I, I've come out is, is that if there's a spectrum between, you could say that I'm a complete discretionary person. I, I use my wits to make my decisions, try to take in all information, and my skill and experience will come together to form a better decision. You would say that that's one extreme. The other extreme is to say, well, let, let's just say I'm always going to be governed by a set of rules. Now, I would probably sort of say that after all the experience I've had, sort of focusing in on rules will always help you more than leaving it yourself to discretion. So I think that, and if you go back down to the example, when you go down to the floor of the Board of Trade when it was open or the Mercantile Exchange, the people who were most successful were those who probably were very disciplined and structured and rules-based. So there is a level for expertise and practical knowledge. But I think in general, this is, is that if you sort of first work under the premise that I should have a set of rules or framework for making my decision, a checklist, you will be better off than if you sort of say, I'm just going to use my wits. What's on your mind, Moritz? Uh, Focus is on my mind. I found that really interesting, like the ingredient for success. And I was just, you know, when, when you two guys chatted, I was thinking about it, and I can certainly think about a number of activities where focus is incredibly important. Think about a game of tennis, right? It's one and a half hours or two hours. If you're not focused on the game, you're going to lose the game. You've just mentioned the options trading pit. You know, it's the, during, the, during the floor session, if you're not focused on that business, you're likely to make mistakes and lose money, right? If you're having a very important negotiation like the one you alluded to with John W. Henry acquiring a baseball team, probably very, very important to be laser-focused during that point in time and get that negotiation right. But now to my question, if you run a CTA, a systematic CTA, Niels and I are involved in that, you are involved in that, what's the value add of permanent focus? Because, you know, at some point, the thing just runs. In my opinion, there's no need to be 12 hours super laser-focused on the markets every day. That's not what we do. So sure. To what extent do we need the focus for our business? Well, there's a there's a different their focus is slightly different or it's centered differently. And one type of focus I would say is mental toughness. You know, I think that 
If you're a trend follower and you're following rules, you need mental toughness because sometimes this is that you're going to see a signal that comes out and you say like, oh my God, I can't believe that I'm going to go short this market at this time. This makes no sense whatsoever. Every newspaper story I read is telling me I should be doing the opposite. And you have to have the mental tough, toughness to say, I'm going to follow the rules. That's a form of focus. The other one when you think about it is, is that you think of great musicians. If you talk to them about how they become great, it's because when they practice, they practice as if they're in a concert, that they're, they're completely focused to try to say, how do I get everything right? And from a trend follower's perspective, that is expressed through the research process. When you think about it, is, is that you could do some form of backtesting, you test some models, and you look at different variations. But I think that what separates a lot of people, especially in trend followings and rules-based, is very focused on what am I doing in my model? What am I adding? What are the implications of this? How do I backtest this properly? So, so there's a different forms of focus. And if you're a trend follower, I think the great part about it is that you don't have to be focused on every tick in the market, but you do have to be focused on how do I look at it improving my model if I want to? How do I make sure that it's uh, optimized in the sense is that I'm getting the best execution for my, uh, my trades? So the focus may be slightly different, but it still it requires a tremendous amount of focus and, and precision. Yeah, I think it requires uh, some you know, clarity, mental clearness, if you will. Like you know, when you engage on an evolutionary research process, you don't want to do that you know, tipsy-turvy. You want to be very structured and principled about how you do this. And that probably, you know, requires experience and then you need to focus on how to get it done. But like you say, there's there's no need to focus on every tick in the market. That just adds no value to the way that we trade. Right. But staying with John Henry, maybe just for, for a little bit before we actually kick off our, our questioning session, which, which I'm looking forward to because uh, there, there's been a, a real set of interesting ones today. But back to John W. Henry, maybe just for our listeners and, and you know, maybe also ourselves, how did the day-to-day business of John W. Henry run? I mean, there were no cloud servers back then, right? Today right. they're there. Python code runs automated, you know, trades are reconciled in an automated fashion. Just, you know, give us a little bit of an impression of, of how it went. Was it spreadsheets? Was it Fortran? Was it, you know, pencil charts and back-of-the-envelope calculations? How did it work? No, I, you know, and I think that uh, we'll find that if you talk to all trend followers, the day-to-day process is very much the same. And uh, <laughs> you sort of say that most trend followers lead boring lives. So at the end of the day, what you do is you get only your prices in from, from the day. You're going to sort of run your model before the uh, Asian open so that you're going to be able to ha- have your stop losses in all the cases, you're going to have your entry and exit for all the positions. Those are then passed on to traders. Okay, You might have uh, the software that you use has been usually proprietary or customized. And then it's given out to traders. This is that it may have started in the early 90s in with spreadsheets, but obviously it then developed into customized software for being able to execute orders for size. And then you watch the markets and see okay, what what gets triggered. How's the execution going? Did you ensure that execution was efficient? And then you track performance during the day. And then there's a recap at the end of the day and you start all over again. From That would be the, the process 
for the actual trading. And then for myself or others is that we're always looking at, well, is there a new model that we should look at? Is there a new way to optimize uh, the portfolio? Should we be applying this to uh, new markets? And we'll sort of say, especially if John Henry is, is it John very much did not like to change or want to change models. So that you'd sort of say, once you stick with a model, you're, you're, you're not going to change because if you sort of switch from model to model constantly based on the environment is that you're actually going to get worse performance. So while we engaged in research to say, let's look at uh, additional markets, let's look at how we sort of improve execution, there wasn't a focus to sort of say, well, let's sort of see what, what model will do well today versus what we've looked at in the past. And then try to sort of say, let's let's optimize the right model for for current situation. That that was not going on. Yeah, no, just staying with John Henry for a little while longer. It's it's such an interesting story. And since the firm doesn't exist anymore, we're not stepping on anyone's toes by digging a little deeper. I am actually interested in 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 your view on this, uh, Mark. And that is, since you've been around for a long time. Certainly, I remember back in the 90s, there were, you know, a number of firms that that you kind of really were the simple or, or how should I say, described sort of our industry. And, and John Henry was certainly one of them and the biggest uh, for, for a period of time. So I'm curious in, in, in what what changed and why at the end of the day, the firm stopped. So in that sense, you could say, was it John losing that focus and once he's lost the focus, the, the business lost the focus, was it the fact that, and, and I could be wrong here, so please correct me, but I, I have a feeling that the type of clients John Henry was catering to were the wirehouses had you know, expensive uh, commission rates and, 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 and what have you. And, and, and when, once their business model died, where else do you go? If you're kind of positioned in that, uh, you don't necessarily can just transition to do institutional business. I'm just curious because it's it's a fast because when you look at the field today of quote unquote the leading CTAs, I would also love to know why you think those firms survive. What did they do right? How had they evolved correctly? Because a lot of them actually have been around for also you know thirty plus years. Well, you know, I think that John redirected his focus. Clearly, he had a other interest, which was uh, had an impact. I think that also this is that the markets changed because the cost structure for trading changed. This is that a lot of the long-term trend followers from the 80s, not just John Henry, but everyone in the industry, this is that they were very much driven by long-term trends because the cost of trading short was just so high. It was prohibitive. So that as the economics in the futures business changed, then it allowed other people to come in and try different strategies and different models. So you had more short-term traders, you could try other things. I think that the, uh, and, and this is not just to uh, John Henry, I, I think that a lot of the American CTAs were more iconoclastic in the senses is that they believed in a philosophy of long-term trend following, or they believed in a philosophy that uh, you never change, change models or you very seldom change models. And I think that the, uh, there is a, the new group of successful traders who were, were more coming out of quants, who were, you know, say, physicists, mathematicians, data scientists, 
A lot of them were coming out of London. I, I sort of half joke that it's, uh, I'll call it the uh, London quant mafia, uh, so which were not iconoclastic. They said, we're just going to try to look at the data and sort of pick whatever we think mm-hmm. is going to work. And so, so, so they, so, and I think this is, is maybe uniquely European versus American. This is that they say, well, we're just gonna, we're going to look at things. What uh, we're going to pick which which works, and we're going to be more adaptable. And we'll probably sort of say that the European quants out of London were probably quicker on the bandwagon to diversify their uh, programs as CTAs beyond trend following. So when we had the sort of fallow period post, you know, there have been periods where trend following hasn't done well. This is that you're not going to make money in trend following. There are no trends. And I think that being less iconoclastic, being more practical, these the London quant mafia would probably say it's like, we're going to have to adopt it. We're going to change. And so we're going to be called CTAs. We may have started out as trend followers, but we're going to sort of adapt and change some of our behavior, add other styles, uh, because we just need to make sure that we ensure we hold clients or add clients. The market also changed because I think that, uh, you know, John Henry and the early and a lot of the trend followers from the 80s and 90s were more high volatility. So you'd sort of say that anywhere from 15 to 25 percent would be the volatility that you you would see for or even sometimes higher for a lot of the early CTAs. Now we'd probably sort of say that if you said you were going to be a 15 percent vol CTA, people would sort of say, whoa, that seems to be an awful lot of risk. That being said, talking to pension funds now, I think that there's more of a willingness or more of acceptance to sort of say, I'm looking for more high octane, high volatility managers who can perform well. You know, if I have a, you know, for a pension fund that has a discount rate of 7%, this is that if you come in and say, well, I'm a, I'm a five vol CTA and I make about 5%, then you can just say, well, you might be a great, great diversifier, but I still am 2% under my discount rate. How am I going to close my gap? So I think there's more of an idea that, well, I don't want a 5% CTA. I want someone who's double-digit volatility. And when you think about it, this is that for the same dollar committed, if you get someone who's going to run at a 10 to 15% vol or higher, you're getting more bang for your buck with the high volatility manager. If you're going to be paying money for a dollar invested, you're looking for say, I want more exposure for that dollar invested. Yeah, completely. I mean, fascinating. Thanks for sharing. I agree with that. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm definitely a fan of higher volatility CTA exposure. I mean, there's a, there's an upper limit. If you're trading at 50 vol, then your blow-up risk is far yeah. too high, right? But in terms of exposure per unit of volatility or exposure per unit of fee, whatever, it's it's, it's a more efficient way to invest in CTAs if you say you go for the 15 to 25 percent or maybe even up to 30 percent volatility range right and then just invest less money to get the same bang for the buck but I agree with you for some strange reason a lot of investors I think got they they they're addicted to a smooth and soft return stream and nothing is supposed to move more than oh my god 10 percent fall 10 percent fall is the new maximum nobody is able to you know, stomach more than 10% fall. That is, you know, they don't like it. 
Right. Uh, the interesting part is is, is that is, is when you think about the regulation of uh, CTAs in the United States versus uh, mutual funds, let's say in the equity market. So there are always the view that, well, look, as a CTA regulated by the CFTC is, is that I have to put in all my disclosure or drawdown numbers so because you have to look at downside risk. And if you actually had all of U.S. equity mutual funds show their drawdown risk, a lot of people would be shocked. This is that you're seeing 40, 50% plus drawdowns for equity funds. Some of them take years and years to actually get back to their high watermark. So if you put it as an apples to apples comparison, this is that the drawdowns for CTAs are, are really not bad, that bad when you look at by comparison what, what you see in some traditional markets. And then if you sort of say, even if you sort of look at how does it compare versus an index, their drawdowns can be pretty tough. And so the focus on drawdowns and that risk aspect has a lot to do with what was the regulatory environment in which the CTAs developed it. Yeah. Do you want to dive into some of these specific topics, Moritz? We've got a long list, I think, of things we want to talk to Mark about. Yes, we've got a long list. And by the way, thank you, Mark, for preparing that. I guess... The, the one thing, let's just start with the one that's uh, on the tip of me. It's um, diversification of trend-following CTAs. How much is too much or when is too much too much? How many markets should CTAs trade? Is there an, a limit to that number of markets where it becomes less efficient so that the floor is yours? We'd like to hear you out. We Like Niels and, and our friends, we've debated that topic, I think, on numerous occasions in the past couple of weeks. And it, it stuck with us. So we'd like to hear your opinion on that. Right. Well, let's start with the basic concept of diversification. Like any good that you buy, there's a marginal utility. It's is that after you have more and more of some, uh, some good, the marginal utility you receive from it is going to decline. And that also applies to diversification. So we're not saying that people shouldn't do, uh, be diversified. But I think that you have to think through What are the implications of adding more diversification, especially if you're an active trading program? So some markets are better trend following than others. Some markets are very correlated with another. So if you sort of say, I want to add more markets, but it's within the same sector, let's say, for example, global bonds, this is it where the correlation could be very high. The marginal impact of adding another market is going to be very low. So they're all going to be sort of fairly correlated. Now, so where you're going to get the most bang for your buck from diversification is, is obviously going to be from commodities. But commodities can also have situations where there may not be, uh, you may have to may, may, may wait a long time for certain trends to develop. And I think that what you find out is, is also is, is that as you get more and more diversification, you actually sort of will reduce the weight in some of the exposures that investors ultimately want. And when you think about it is, is that they're always looking at how to sort of protect my core portfolio of stocks and bonds. As you add, uh, and, and what happens is, is that the trends actually occur when correlations go to one. So in that situation is, is, is that it, you sort of say that if you're very diversified, you don't get the benefit of, of the correlation going to, uh, to one. 
and you actually can have a situation that you don't perform as well as you, you would like at the critical periods when investors want it most. So I think that uh, adding more markets is good, but there is, is going to be a, become a point where you're going to actually have uh, less, less value added from each market that's added. And now what you, you have seen is, is that some of the largest CTAs are probably under-diversified. So the ones that are trading a million dollars plus is that they're still going to be focused in on mostly equities. They're going to be focused on bonds and they're going to have very little commodity exposure or a number of other markets, which they just can't trade. So what you'll find out that uh, the smaller CTAs, it could actually be more diversified and get more value added than large ones who actually are forced into only trading global bonds and stocks because that's the only thing that's liquid enough for them to handle the money that they have. So there is a, uh, a, a trade-off, and you could sort of say that you like there is a optimal size for a CTA because as you get larger and larger, you can't trade all the markets and get the diversification you want. I think you make a, a number of great points, Mark, and I want to stay with this a little bit because it has been really a, a topic that, as Moritz says, we've discussed many times. I come from the camp where... I'm a believer in diversification, no doubt, but I actually think that there is a kind of a limit and it's smaller than a lot of people think in terms of where, as you say, you continue to get a lot of benefit. I think Jerry and Moritz comes more from the camp that, yeah, as long as it's not perfectly correlated, you you need to keep adding. Right. And I'm, I'm not quite there, to be honest. And I, I, I referenced it a little bit to a couple of things that um, one thing you said, but another thing is that there is this great video on YouTube with Ray Dalio, and he talks about the holy grail of diversification, and he has this handwritten chart that he shows, and he's he keeps saying that, you know, if it's only 60 or 70% correlated, I mean, you can add a thousand uh, instruments, but it's not really going to lower your risk. You're lowering your risk really comes from finding uncorrelated return streams, so very low correlation, and that, of course, we all agree with that that is tremendous when you can find those. So that's kind of one thing why I believe that even if it's 60 or 70% correlated, because as you say, and this is really important, and my argument kind of in a simple way has been, I also think that we as managers, if we want to deliver outsized returns, we we don't we, we shouldn't be afraid of having quote unquote conviction in our portfolio, because as you rightly say, when there are trends, the portfolio tends to get quite correlated. Right. So yeah, we can have all, all this wonderful diversification, but actually we should not be afraid of having a correlated portfolio or a con, you know portfolio with conviction from time to time because that's where we make our money. And I fear a little bit that the inflow of institutional money has rushed a lot of managers to one, lower volatility overall, but also this idea that we just keep diversifying, 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 and we kind of water out, we end up watering out our returns to some extent. Yeah, the volatility is low, but the returns are not very sexy. And I think from my conversations with Harold at TransTrend, I think that they went to like 300, 350 markets, realizing that that's too much. I mean, we have to scale back on that. So I'm not against diversification at all, but I actually think once you get kind of past 70 market-ish in a, in a diversified portfolio, you probably don't need much more than that because it will include a healthy dose of commodities. And, and as you say, yeah, okay, if you get more than a billion or two billion on the management, you probably will start to lose that diversification, completely agree. 
So those are my kind of, this is kind of part of this conversation we've had. And, you know, more to chime in with, with, with why you think differently, because I think it's an important topic. And I think a lot of people struggle with coming to conclusions on it. Right. Well, one of the things that uh, you have to think about this is that there are other forms of just markets for diversification. So the framework that I have used and have used it for a long, long time. And so, uh, so, so for me, it's second nature. I used to look when I, and even when I look at analyzing a trend follower, I look at three things. I call it STM. What's their style, timing, and markets. And what happens is, is that you can get a certain amount of diversification in markets. So, you know, how, what's the breadth of opportunities that they're looking at across markets? You also have to look at the timing because you get diversification from the type of model you use. If you're just a long-term trend follower, you're not really diversified. If you have a long and a short term, so different timing models, then you're, you're adding timing diversification. And then there's style. There's different styles that can actually be applied to the same market that can also give you diversification. So what I call is maybe a two-phase where you're always either long or short a market or a three-phase where you're long, short, or neutral. So the real issue about diversification also that I think about is, is, is that it's tied up with the type of model you use. If let's say you say, I always hold positions and then I add more and more markets, well, then you're, by definition, the contribution to any of any one market to your return is going to be lower and lower. If, on the other hand, you say, I trade or I want to trade 70, 100, 200 markets, but then I rank order all of the markets and I then only choose, let's say, for my long positions, the ones that have the most intense trend and I only sort of take the short positions on the ones that have the most intense downtrends, well, then you actually sort of reduce diversification because what you then use is that you collapse it into a fewer number of positions. So the diversification of markets is also tied with how you then position and take positions. So these are not separate questions. Yeah. So I just want to come back to that so just one more time, Mark, and maybe let me let me set it up as kind of like a challenge. Okay. I think where my, my opinion is that if you're just adding markets, you know, you have a number N of markets in a trend-following CTA system, and you're just adding markets and you give them all the same risk weight, then I think this will end up increasing your risk. Why do I say that? I say it because if you do it that way, you'll end up with a lot of equities and you'll end up with a couple of bonds, all of which are, all of which, and NFX markets, all of which, in, in, you know, especially the equities and, and the bonds, they, they have a lot of correlation, right? So if you just give them the same weight, that's, that probably isn't a good idea. As you've just mentioned, there's much less correlation within the commodities, right? But if I, if I spot markets that have a relatively high correlation, then why give them the same weight? Use the example of gas oil and heating oil and crude, right? Let's say the correlation of those markets is between 0.7 or 0.8. I'm making that number up, but it's somewhere up there. It's relatively high, right? Uh, I don't have to give them the same weight. I can trade them all with like one third weight or one half weight. See what I mean? Right. So that, you know, I can, I can still add them to the portfolio, 
and take the benefit of the fact that they are not perfectly correlated. Their correlation is not one. It is less than one, right? So I have more markets in my portfolio. I have a greater opportunity, therefore, to detect the trend because just the number N of markets in my portfolio is greater. Now, one could say that, oh, your correlation observation, the 0.7 or 0.8 that I have just mentioned, is off because we know correlations are dynamic, right? They're, it's not a constant mm -hmm. God-given thing that they're always 0.8. So essentially, when, when I do it that way, I'm long correlation. If correlations increase, then I get more bang from the buck if they all get on the same trend because then I have a good position on if the correlation decreases, then I should have had a larger position. I should have given those markets a larger weight because oh. of the fact that they're little correlated. So doing it that way, I don't see why there should be a disadvantage of spreading your risk and spreading your opportunity set. And, and the opportunities they all have, and this is, you know, Jerry has been preaching to us for a long time, and I agree, they all have the same expectation in terms of the P&L that we can make from those trades. So why not broaden the opportunity set as much as we can? No, I think there's no question is, is, is that uh, uh, broadening the opportunity set is a good thing. And I think if I hear you correctly, but at the same time is, is that you change the weights based on its relative correlation. Exactly. It's a correlation-dependent weight. Absolutely. And so uh, I think that uh, we are in agreement is, is, is that if you can find something that's going to be uncorrelated and liquid that you could be able to trade, you probably should add it. If you find something that is uh, very similar to other markets that you already trade, then you say the marginal contribution may be less. Okay. So, and what you see is, is that when people build their portfolios, sometimes what they'll do is they'll allocate and max out the amount of exposure that they'll have in global equities. They'll max out their exposure in bonds, and then they'll have a certain bucket for commodities so that then they'd be able to sort of, I don't want to say you know, risk parity, but they're going to look at sort of allocating risk according to sectors, not just markets. That's one way in which they could be able to ensure that they get the right amount of diversification or enough diversification. So there's no question, as you mentioned before, is this is that adding more stock indices may not be able to get you what you want if you want to add more diversification and unique trading opportunities. I want to ask you something, Moritz, because I, I still think a little bit differently to, to what you say. I get the point that you say, okay, Instead of having 1% risk in each, I'm just going to say I'm going to have 1%, I'm going to divide it by three, fine. But what are you really, where's your real benefit? Because you're also going to have, you're going to make a lot less money in each market. So now you have to get all three markets trending at the same time to have a meaningful impact. Yeah, but much less risk than just doing it on one market, right? Yeah. If well, you just choose one market, what if you're on the unlucky side of that market all the time? And it doesn't work out. At least I have three or four or five, right? And therefore, a greater probability that at least some of those will work. Yeah, but I just don't. I, I don't see it in the data as such that having so little risk in 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 some of these markets just to be res less risk. And this is, I guess, I mean, maybe maybe, maybe the risk adjusters returns are, are higher. I don't know. I just I haven't seen it. If we use TransTrend as an example, if we just use them as an example because they're public about it, they've, they've been doing it for yeah. a long time. If you look at the numbers, they don't seem to the, confirm. The, I guess that. The, the great thing about our industry is, is that there's not one way of doing it. 
maybe you know we each would like to think that the way we do it is the best way out there and everybody should just sway our way but obviously that's not the case every trend following cta is different and they all have different opinions the wrong word but a different mindset on, on how to approach these things right you do it a little bit different than i do it that's fine but you know case in point with the energy markets because we've just used them three months ago or two and a half months ago all the energies were moving down right it's not just been crude oil the May contract or whatever it was went negative. But when you look at the overall petroleum complex, gas oil, heating oil, RBOP, all of that type of stuff, it all went down. Net gas went down even. So it didn't matter that I have a correlation-dependent weight and less risk weight, for instance, in crude, because they all came around. I essentially had the full position right. on. But, but you also hear... no diversification there. <laughs> exactly, but uh, I'm just, I'm just yeah. countering uh, Niels's point yeah. where he's saying like, yeah, but then you don't get the full benefit of the trend. Well, I got the full benefit on the short side on the energies because I had the appropriate size in each of those markets. But Mark makes a really good point there. But that's without diversification, right? You, you needed everything to move together to get the same benefit. And I want to point it back to the stories that Jerry uh, has told a few times, and that is, you know, how he made a whole years of performance in one of the energies, right? So sometimes you get this blast that sometimes, you know, heating oil or whatever it is, nat gas or whatever it is, just goes ballistic. And this is where I think that methodology loses out because then you get the diversification of having an actual opportunity of making a meaningful amount of money from just one market going berserk, so to speak. Yes, you, you have that at yeah. the risk as well. Because, you know, using my example again, and then we'll let Mark, uh, you know, talk about that. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating because in my example, yes, I mean, I benefited from the fact that they were correlated during that point in time. And that essentially gave me the full energy position on, right? Now, if you say, in contrast to Maritz, I'm only going to trade crude. Right? Because I know that heating oil and RBOP and, and gas oil, they're correlated markets, so let's just drop them. If for some reason, you know, we, as we know, correlations are dynamic and they're not always 0.8. So for some strange reason, the thing is only about crude, right? And crude doesn't move, but heating oil goes down and RBOP goes down and, and gas oil goes down. At least I still have three markets that work for me. Whereas you, because you bet on crude only, don't get the benefit at all. So it's not just about making the money. It's also about, you know, spreading the opportunity set and the risk. And, and that is, of course, true. But I've, I know very few CTAs um, who would trade just crude, right? So the point I'm trying to make is that, and I'd love to hear your point, Mark, on this. From a portfolio construction point of view of a CTA, right, we know that energy, they're liquid. So they have to have a meaningful part. They have to be a meaningful part of your portfolio anyways, because there aren't that many super liquid markets once you get to the commodities right so you need to give people you need to give a, a decent weight to energies you need to give a decent weight to metals and and so on and so forth so i just think personally that it would be unlikely anyways and i accept that yeah if all the energy markets turn at the same time just like the bonds turn at the same time just like equities turn at the same time or the dollar yeah you're going to lose some money of course you will because it's correlated I just don't think we should shy away from that and say, yeah, that's the breadth of price we pay. But we also have to have a decent chance of making real performance, outstanding performance. And if we diversify too much, we're going to lose that. But as you can see, Mark, it's it's a topic that, oh. that, that we have. We love to debate. <laughs> we, we're not we don't agree, but we love to debate it. These are some of the paradoxes of trend following. So 
most trend followers would say if you ask them, they're, they're non-predictive. They say, I can't tell you what, you're, what markets are going to make money. And what they do find in reality is, is that there's an 80-20 rule. Is this is that you know, most of your money is made by just a few markets. And if you look at at the end of the year, you didn't know which ones that uh, you, you couldn't have predicted which ones you're going to make markets. I can't predict what trend will next. I know that most of my money will come from just a few trades. So I want to trade as broad a basket as possible. So that that would be on, on one hand the art argument. And then you sort of say, so in the energy complex, I don't know if it's going to come from heating oil. I don't know if it's going to come from crude or natural gas. I got to trade everything because it's, I can't predict which one will do well. On the other hand, this is, is that the, the big argument comes in is, is that you make your real big money, not you know where you make, if for any given year, you might make a lot of your money for a few markets, is that you make your big money as a trend follower when everything starts to correlate and you've got multiple positions that are all trending in the same direction. So you sort of say, like, if I want to have a very, very good year, an impressive year, I need to have everything moving together. So I don't want the diversification. I want all the energy sector moving in the same direction. I want global equities moving in the same direction. I want bonds moving in the same direction. This is that if I do that and I sort of even if I trade all of those markets, I'm going to do very well because the correlations are going to one, and if there's all trending, I'm going to make money in all of those markets. Yeah, I guess maybe my my the reason why I defend my position a little bit is that I come from this very strong belief that trend following is based on the fact that we can't predict, and this is why I think you have to treat all markets equal, and not make a prediction saying, well, these three are correlated most of the time, so I'm going to reduce the risk to those these guys, right? I, for me. I'm just going to treat it equally because I don't know if it's going to be heating oil or crude oil or nat gas, but I have to control the sector risk. I do know that we have to make decisions on that. I agree. But anyways, we could um, probably go on another hour. So what do you want to talk about, Moritz? I'd like to ask the two of you a okay. question. So so when you think about this, this is that you could trade a lot of markets and you could have, I say, I have positions in everything. Or, you know, this will sort of say the classic academic momentum strategy is that I rank order everything. And so even though I might look at a broad universe, I condense that down to a rank order of my longs and shorts to fewer positions. How do you two view that issue? Because I think that ultimately a classic momentum academic would say, sure, we could trade, a, I could look at a thousand equities because I'm just going to rank order and I'm going to buy the top decile and, and sell the the uh, the lowest decile. So it doesn't matter because I'm only picking the top anyway. So how, how do you two you know, reconcile that with diversification? I don't do the rank ordering. Okay. I do this, what I've, what I've just called the correlation dependent risk way. And I don't want to see my portfolio have one position in the bubble and another position in the shots and just go full on on the two of them and then the 10-year and then all the other bonds because I should have done that, you know, with the bonds, with the benefit of hindsight. Yes, I mean, just, you know, put much more weight into the bonds because they've been performing so well for trend-following CTAs, right? But I know that on a given day when the shots moves up, the bubble is likely to be up. The number of days that you can count where they're moving in opposite directions is very little. 
So I know there is a very consistent correlation cluster there. It's a persistent correlation. It's unlikely to go away. And I would like to take that into account and not just, you know, give the bubble the same footprint as the shots and the same footprint as the tenure. This is not how it works for me. And I don't want to rank order them. You know, if they if they hit their breakouts or whatever, you know, signals people use, I then take the position. There's no ordering and, and saying like, you know, hey, uh, I'm, I'm only going to go long if there is a 50-day breakout, a 100-day breakout, a 150-day breakout. Oh, now I'm happy. Now I'm going long. No, 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 no. I, I go long with with every signal. Right. And and I think that that defines a lot of CTAs versus, we'll sort of say, the academic risk premium crowd, which are all relativists. And I think that most, them, yes. most trend followers are sort of absolutists. I'm looking for trends. It doesn't matter. I'm not going to rank order them. If there's a trend, I want to take a position and yeah. I want to look at it in those terms as opposed to, we'll call it a trend momentum relativist. And I think that that's the success of many CTAs is because they're, we'll say, more absolutists. So on our side, we want to treat as a starting point everything equal. So we we allow all markets, if they were at full risk, to have the same contribution or the same risk allocation in the portfolio. But we diversify across a few different levels. One, I would say we're one of the firm's and I think this has been a core belief uh, of Don uh, always, I mean, is that we want to have a meaningful allocation to commodities. So we have 40% of the markets are commodities. Sure, that means we're not going to be the next Winton with 20 billion under management, for sure. So we accept that our capacity is going to be smaller, but we, in the fact that we don't charge a management fee also means that we want to deliver absolute returns to our clients. We continue to do so. So that's one thing. We diversify, as you say, across style. So we do have a binary type old classical trend following model, which Bill Dunn divided or, or developed back in the, the 70s when he first got started. And of course, it's evolved, but that's one kind of trend following. And as you say, you're kind of either long or you're short. But then we have a, a different trend following model that can be neutral for a lot of the time. It's much more sensitive, much more fast reacting from time to time. So we can diversify on that as well. So you could say the confidence level we build up in terms of positions is by, and then of course, timeframes, we diversify in many different timeframes. So I guess we end up building up the confidence in each of these markets through all of these different decisions. And that's why we're not afraid of ending up having both a decent side exposure to the shats and the bubble. If that is what all the models are dictating, we'll do it. But we also have many ways of of getting out because they won't obviously exit at the same time and, and so on and so forth. But I agree with Moritz in the sense that the beauty of what we do as an industry is we don't do it the same way everyone. And that and that's great. And this is also why I said it's interesting that both Moritz and on our side this year, we seem to be behind the field if we look at the peers. So clearly we're doing something different, even though we between us ourselves do something different. We're also doing something different to a lot of the other firms out there. Right. And and some of that, I think, with looking at the at CTAs for this year, is that those who have been more diversified may have underperformed relative to those who have been more focused. That may not continue for the rest of the year or for next year, but those that have been very focused pro probably have been able to exploit this 
biggest trends this year. Those who have been more diversified, especially in commodities where you haven't had outside the energy section, you haven't had as big a moves in some cases, or they're now coming now, like in the case of silver. I think that you're, you're, you're going to see a different performance track record. You're going to see more dispersion in returns, which I think is the one thing that we've seen, especially in 2020. There's been more dispersion in returns across CTAs. And what that tells us is, is that they're not doing all the same thing. Their exposure to markets, to styles are very different. And when volatility goes up, you're going to see more dispersion in returns across trend followers. And that was one of the topics we also had for for today. So we can kind of dive into that just with maybe a follow up question that is say, what do you think is the main driver of dispersion is that the markets that managers trade or the style they trade or timeframes? What do you think where where does dispersion really stem from? It's a little bit of, of both. So so one, I think there's dispersion from uh, from market sectors. So that can be a big driver for performance. And then I think second is, is, is that the style. So I think that you can be able to actually analyze the dispersion of returns and sectors a little bit easier to try to get a handle about what's going to be the impact and volatility on a manager, what their performance might look like in the future. Style is much harder to sort of quantify in terms of, okay, if I'm a a long-term trend follower, I will. How will I differ from someone who has multiple time frames? That's a harder to distinguish between managers. But as volatility goes up, what you're going to see is see that all of the small decisions that trend followers make, all of the choices that they make, actually then become amplified, and that's when you start seeing it through the dispersion in performance. Lawrence, where do you want to go next? Oh, uh, many ways. It's it's amazing. We are beyond the one hour mark and we haven't even touched on vol targeting. <laughs> it's, uh, I think we have to get Mark back to get through his list of questions. There's another eight <laughs> ones left. I mean, we'll probably do three hours, but um, maybe just focusing on, I mean, we've, we've had some, you know, technical topics here, but what I would like to have a word about is, uh, or chat about is, what do you say is the narrative of selling a strategy, which I think is important. What can be done better? So what can CTAs do better to convey their message and sell their strategy? And what should they focus on? Right. This is an ongoing piece of research that, that I have, because as you do more and more due diligence on managers, you look at managers, what you find out is this is that the narrative that they use, either in DDQs, in their pitch books, have a huge influence on whether money is going to be directed to them or not. So narrative matters. Even scientists will use narrative, they'll use metaphors to describe what they do to try to make it more accessible to their readers and to the people that they're trying to teach or the people that they're trying to convince in their arguments. So, so narrative and storytelling is very important. And I think that that's something that CTAs, quant managers in general, have not spent a lot of time on. Because if you say, if I'm a trend follower, you say, yeah, I'm a trend follower. This is that I'm non-predictive. I look for trends. When I make trends, I make money. If there are no trends, I don't make money. I'm sort of saying this somewhat tongue-in-cheek. But that narrative is, uh, is different than if you have someone who's a discretionary global macro trader and you'll say well you know here's what i think central banks are going to do and here's what i am how i'm delving into the minutia of, of fundamental information and you can sort of see that the 
uh, listener is sitting at the edge of his seat wanting to hear exactly what the narrative that they're hearing from this discretionary manager. And a trend follower, you go in there and you tell your story. You say like, well, here's what I do. Is is it? It's a model. I trade the trends. That's it. I'm not trying to try to figure out what the Jay Powell is trying to do. I just follow trends. So I think that as an industry, when you think about it, is, is that CTAs and trend following is still one of the most powerful hedge uh, fund alternatives available, and yet the narrative has not been strong on why this is value-added. We've been sort of had the narrative of sort of the last decade might be crisis alpha, which I think that everyone has got on that bandwagon for a while. They use that as the narrative. But I think that if you go to a lot of pension funds, if you use the word crisis alpha, this is is that they will have a frown on their face. They do not like that concept. And I think that it doesn't really tell exactly what a trend follower is doing. It doesn't show what the value added. So I think that we need to have, as an industry for trend followers, a better narrative story. And I think that that's something that we need to work on. Yeah. I mean, have you worked on it so far? I mean, do you have any, any can you share any ideas of where you yeah. think we should be going with that? Because I think, as you rightly say, I think it's a, it's been a big part of the reason why perhaps this strategy, despite all the evidence, proving that it's probably, as you say, the most powerful of the alternative investment strategies, it doesn't show up in the numbers in terms of size, especially right. if you remove Bridgewater from from the AUM, which I th- think actually it should be because I don't see them as a pure CTA. So if you remove them, we're down to like a couple of hundred billion dollars in size, which is small. Right. There's a couple themes that I sort of like to f- focus on. Uh, one is, is that you know, I've written about in the past is what I call the difference between convergent and divergent uh, styles. This is that trend following is is divergent in the sense is that you make money when markets move away from equilibrium. When there's dislocations in markets, is, is that which are often unpredictable, unexpected, that that's when trend followers are going to make money because they're trying to exploit that. They're not trying to look for what is fair value. They're just looking at said, if there's no dislocations, we're not going to make money. If there are dislocations, we will make money. So that's one theme that I think that needs to be pushed more. And I think that that resonates well with investors. The second is instead of talking about crisis alpha is talking about is, is that what is the value of trend following because we do well under periods of financial stress. So, so I've looked at some numbers of when you look at stress numbers, okay, or risk aversion numbers, this is that that's when trend followers do well because when you think about it, when traders, investors are under stress, they're probably going to not make decisions as quickly as before. They're going to then start to lead to more trends, which can be exploited by the trend follower. So in some senses is that it's not so much a crisis because then when you always have crisis alpha, you say like, well, what do you do when there's no crisis? You're you're, you're left with this hollow idea of why should I hold this investment? Because then I'm going to say I'm waiting for the next crisis and you can't tell me when it's going to occur. So what do I do? And what does it mean that you have an alpha? But if you sort of said, look, if there are financial stress, there's going to be dislocations. When there's stress, then people are going to start to change their behavior. 
and they're going to be more cautious, which means the different flows and behavior is going to lead to trends, that that's something that we try to exploit. And the final, which is, uh, you know, I've t- talked about this, is that the, this concept of VUCA, and I'm, I'm actually trying to write a book on this, is, is that it's the Army War College came up with this concept that when an army commander is in the battlefield, he actually faces an environment which they give the acronym of VUCA. It's volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And then you say that if you want to be a good trained army officer, you have to determine how do you deal with VUCA. And you think about it is, is, is that, well, what do trend followers do in a VUCA world? We say like, well, we follow rules. We're going to start to follow trends, okay, because we're going to say that when volatility goes up, there's more dispersion in prices. So following a trend or be a divergent trader is good. When there's a high level of uncertainty, you don't know what to do. So in that sense is that actually following the checklist or following what the price behavior is probably a good thing to do. When there's a high level of complexity that what you want to try to do is you could be uh, you know, stymied by this complexity. So do you want to try to simplify your rules, simplify your behavior? And again, that sort of leads to trend following. And ambiguity, when you sort of say that when you run a model, you could say that there's the independent variables that are uncertain. So if I sort of say there's a relationship between bonds and inflation and there's some coefficient on this relationship, you say that, well, there's uncertainty about what inflation will be, but we don't really know for sure what's going to be that coefficient or what that relationship between inflation and bonds would be. That's ambiguity to some degree. You could go into more probabilistic thinking about the Ellsworth, Ellsberg paradox, but I think that what we want to try to think about this ambiguity was is that when complex models don't work well, when there's a lot of stress and there's a lot of uncertainty. And so I think that then it goes back to using more simple rules. And I think that thinking in those terms can get people to wrap around what the value added of a rules-based, price-based trend system would look like. So these are some of the things that I think that I think about in the narrative. I think that each manager has to need to work on his own narrative, but at the same time, I think that it's something that they probably should spend more time. So everyone sort of says, okay, I've got a great model. I've done all my back testing. I'm a smart guy. People will give me money. And that's not the case, is that you have to work at being able to convey how you're smart in a way that will elicit some emotion that people say, I'm moved enough to actually give you money. And even in terms of how you sort of describe your model is important. And the analogy I give is, uh, I call it the cookbook analogy. So you go to a bookstore and you go down to the aisle where it says cookbooks. And you see all these great chefs will have cookbooks. And what they'll do is you pick up one of their cookbooks. And they'll give you all of their secrets of how they prepare their meal. They'll tell you in the cookbook, here are all the ingredients. Here's the exact measurements. I'll show you pictures of what I do. I'll go through step by step on exactly what I'm going to do to get this great meal or this great souffle. 
And then at the end of the day, you read this, you say like, it's all here. I could be a master chef. I just have to follow this cookbook. You go home, you try it out. What happens? It fails. Then you realize that in reality is like, wow, what this chef is doing is so complex. Although it seems simple after I read the cookbook, I should just hire him. I'm going to go to his restaurant and I'll pay a premium for him to prepare the meal because I know exactly how complex it is to do this myself. And in some sense, this is that I think that what that tells me is that trend followers should be more open and transparent about what they do. Because you can sort of say that I can tell you what I'm going to do. And I can say, well, I've back tested this and I've done this and I've tested this model. This is that you can't do that yourself. So if you try to replicate it, it's going to be very hard. And I can sort of say the real value of research is not what you find. It's what you find that doesn't work that you throw out. And so I think that if you tell people and provide more transparency, I think that they receive more confidence in you as a manager. It advances a narrative. And at the same time, what you find out is it's going to be very hard for them to actually replicate what you do. So there is something called practical knowledge. And practical knowledge, when you think about it, is is, is that for each one of Neil's, you, for for Mort's, if, if you get Jerry, if we sort of said, show me your model, this is that I don't think that they could probably replicate if you sort of say, here's all the, basically the rules, not the code, but you say, here's your rules. They couldn't replicate what you do because there's a level of practical knowledge that you have that can't be bottled. And that's what people pay for. Which is the experience, right? Yeah. In a way. It's the experience. I mean, you, you have zero practical knowledge if you don't have experience. So, so there's an old Greek term uh, for this. It's called metis. Uh, and and in, in the old Greek term is, is that it's often referred to as cunning intelligence. And when you think about it, this is that you say John Henry, Dunn, all of the great managers were uh, had this metis or practical knowledge or cunning intelligence on how to implement, you know, trend following in a way that made them successful. And that's what investors should pay for. And now what the job of the manager is to tell a narrative on why that they could sort of say their their metis is something that's a value that someone should be willing to pay for. And I, I love that, Mark. I mean, I love the whole thing you told, you said about narrative. I completely agree with it. I actually also think it explains why a lot of these um, quote-unquote trend replicator that the bank suddenly were experts in developing and trend following is so easy to do. Well, if you look at the numbers, you look at the performance, I mean, none of them have done as well as, as, as you say, the people who've been around for a long time and have that cunning intelligence about how it really works. I wanted also to get in a question a little bit, a little bit off topic of trend following per se, but just a little bit relating to to your work, because clearly you spend a lot of time with your blog, which is fantastic. Everybody should read that. But content is is not necessarily easy to produce. We do it here every week and sometimes a little bit extra. And it takes a lot of work, frankly. And I was just curious, I mean, how do you come up with all the ideas for all the blogs? I mean, you write a blog almost every day. I mean, where do you get, what's your source of inspiration? <laughs> it's just, a, I read a lot. People ask me questions. I try to be curious myself. And 
if you read my blog, sometimes it's, it's, it'll talk about futures and trend following. Sometimes it talks about ARP. Sometimes it goes macro. So these are just the things that sort of interest me or I'm curious about. And what I'm sort of, or I like to say that if I'm curious about it, I'm doing a little bit of study. And I started out as just like a notebook for myself is, is that this is back you know, over 20 years ago, I just have notebooks like, okay, if I'm reading a research piece, okay, what, what did I get out of this? Or what am I thinking? Or what more questions I have? And then I started saying is that, well, if I write my notebooks of ideas, then this is going to help me think better. And then I said, well, why don't I just then put it into a blog form? So I would actually sort of say like, I probably have more ideas that I have time to write about it. And it's almost as actually trying to you prioritize what's more interesting. And I will sort of say some things I find very interesting, uh, you know, because I could see the number of people that click in, and read and say like, oh, this is really good writing. I love what I wrote about. This is a great topic. And I find out nobody reads. Right. And then something else I sort of say, it's almost like uh, Trend following, not predict. I don't know what, I can't predict what people are going to like. Yeah. And other topics, I could sort of say that I'd say, like, okay, this is something, a piece of research I have. I'll give a quick little summary. I'll post it. And all of a sudden, is bam, there'll be a couple hundred hits. So sometimes you just don't know. So it's a, it's a work of what I find interesting at a given point in time. We talked a lot about focus already in this episode. We used the word a lot. I'm just curious, again, back to your process of producing all this wonderful content. I mean, do you actually have a specific time of day where you say, I'm going to sit down from 9 to 11 in the morning and write, this is my focus time? Or is it much more of a, I'll find a, an hour here and there to just uh, put out a blog? It probably is in the evening. Uh, I'll sort of do most of the work and I'll do the outlining because that's what I'm doing, my extra uh, reading and research. And then I might write something. I'll put it away. I'll read it first thing in the morning and then then hit the send button. So so I just sort of say, like, did I fr- forget something? So it's it's an evening, uh, sort of an evening ritual. I have a stack of things that I'm, I'm looking at. And it says, says that the advantage is as your kids get older and you become an empty nester, then you find out this is that you have time for other things. <laughs> well, just like the good cooking example you gave, uh, usually it tastes better if you let it marinate overnight anyway. So it seems like you're doing the same with your content. Yes. Moritz, where do you want to go next? I think we'll, we'll, we'll keep Mark on a little bit longer today because there's so much good stuff to talk about. Yeah, much, much good stuff. Maybe, maybe one more and, you know, being respectful of the time, but, um, uh, there, there is such a, a nice long list that you've provided, Mark, uh, we should definitely get you back on. But the second point that you make here is convexity of trend followers and the new big buzz. Yeah. So convexity we've heard about, why is this the new big buzz or is this the new big buzz or is there something else, the new big buzz that we don't know about, but you do? Well, the, uh, talking with my, you know, my partner, Tim Tanko in, uh, we talked to a lot of pension funds, a lot of institutional investors, and we're just sort of seeing that, especially in 2020, more people are using the term convexity than we've had in years. So in some senses is that, uh, and this is, I think, an outgrowth of what happened in 2020. This is it, what you sort of see that you say, what are Everyone's talk about, oh, I got to have tail risk protection. I got to have downside hedging. And then if you did that, you put in all your tail risk hedge or whatever is, is that in March and you paid for that, and what you sort of find out is this is that, and you sort of 
locked in some of that hedge, then you weren't able to capture any of the upside in, in April if you didn't lift those hedges or get out, uh, or change your positioning. And what you really find out is this is that the, this is almost the, the investment that people want to have is to say, I want to have something that is going to have positive upside beta and negative downside beta. So I want to I want to have beta that's going to be sort of if the market is going up, I got to be able to capture some of that market upside. The market's going down, I need protection. And I think that they believe that some people talked about downside protection over the last decade, but then they, they didn't give in and they didn't receive any of the upside. It didn't sort of participate in the big you know global equity rally for the last 10 years. So they're so saying, I said, no, I don't want to have something that's just going to hedge and offer diversification benefits. I need to have something that actually is going to be able to participate in the upside, but then also give me downside protection. Of course, this is the holy grail. But when you think about uh, going back to our talk about crisis alpha, they said, well, I don't want crisis alpha if it's something that doesn't make me any money in normal times and then makes me money and there's a crisis. I don't really like that investment. I want something that's more convex. I want to need to have that convexity. And when you go back to narrative, you'd say like, well, the academics would say like, well, trend follower, they're long a straddle. This, this, this is it. Now, now tell me if you go to an institutional investor or any investor and you say like, they say, well, what's your style? You say, well, sir, I'm long a straddle. <laughs> so, so is that going to stir their hearts? Are they going to be moved to invest with you if you say, well, I'm just a, a portfolio of long straddles. In the, is so now, if you start saying convexity, that I'm going to give you upside beta, okay, when the market is going higher, and I'm going to try to give you downside protection if the market reverse. Then you can say, from a narrative perspective, that actually sort of seems to make more sense. And then if you sort of say, well, why does that occur? It's because there's market uh, have divergences. Why do market diverge? Because they're going under stress. What what happens when there's stress? Well, there's VUCA and people start to change their behavior. And this is, and we're sort of following rules so that then in this uncertain world, we could be able to make money. Then you're talking about a, a, a story that actually is a narrative that makes this a very impressionable, is very impressionable on investors and actually said, this is different than what I'm hearing from a lot of other hedge fund managers this is something that actually is unique in my portfolio, and this is something that I want to have. Yeah, no, I think that makes uh, a lot of sense. My my last question is just something I think also you wrote about recently, and, and I know that our friends at AQR wrote an article about it recently, and that is this whole thing about, so what is the best protection you can get? Is it from buying put options? Is it from hedge funds? Or is it, in fact, from... Trend followers, I'd love to hear sort of what your findings were when looking at this topic, which I, I believe you you did that as well. You looked sure. at this topic. Yeah. And this has been an ongoing issue for probably decades of people have always looked at the sort of tail protection. Should I use uh, puts or should I use trend following? And, and so the argument has been in some senses that, well, puts, you can be able to know exactly what you're getting. If I buy 20% out of the money uh, puts, 
that I could get this kind of downside protection. This is what I have. Now, the problem comes in is, is that if you did this put strategy on an ongoing basis, is that the returns are horrible. You really are buying insurance. So you're paying out money for protection and you're not getting any positive return. And you still have a problem is, is, is that even though you sort of buy a 20% out of the money put, is, is that you still have to roll that. If the market doesn't go down 20%, then you're going to have certain payoffs. If it's a slow grind lower at it, just a 2% a month, you're never going to be able to hit that strike on the down market. And so what happens is you're not getting the same protection. On the other hand, is, is that when you think about trend following, is, is that it's not an insurance policy is that you could potentially make money for trend following because there could be tre- you could make money on, on a trends that go higher and you could also make uh, money on the trends lower. There is a correlation that you're going to have against your traditional investments, but at the same time is, is, is that there is both upside and downside. In some senses that the put option does not give you any convexity, trend following does because you have the opportunity to make money if trends are going higher. And so I think that there's a theoretical reason for why you should prefer trend following. And I think that their uh, empirical work, which is an update of, I think, work that we've seen in the past, it shows that, that when you compare it against a, a rolling put strategy, it does significantly better than any put strategy. So on both a theoretical reason and for an empirical testing, this is that if you're worried about your downside risk, or you're looking for some diversification, but you don't know when that next big down move is going to occur, is that trend following me? Well, empirically, over the time period they tested, is a better alternative than puts. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And of course, that um, adds to the evidence that we have as, a, as, a, as an industry. Uh, and hopefully, we'll, with some better narrative now that we have the VUCA and the cookbook and all of that good stuff, we'll, we'll make more progress than we have made in the last 30 years. That's, that's going to be great. Let me just throw in a few things we normally do as well, and that is to update you as to how uh, this wonderful industry is doing this year and this month. The beta 50 index up uh, 2.25%, uh, but still down 64 basis points for the year. Sukjen CTA index uh, up almost 2% July, but still down just less than 1% this year. The trend index also up 2.33% in July, up 1.5% for the year. And the short-term traders index is uh, pretty much flat, up 13 basis points, um, but up 3.11% 3, uh, 3. for the year. And the bridge alternatives up 2.2% in July and up about three quarters of a percent so far this year. And this is all as of Thursday. I think Friday was probably a little bit of a down day for uh, most trend followers. Any last questions, Moritz, thoughts you want to throw in? No, thank you, Mark. I really enjoyed that. Very appreciative of you coming on. Uh, it's been a great conversation, I think. Neil Sports, thanks for inviting me. It's, it's been a pleasure. I'm, I'm really surprised. I'm looking at the recording time. We're just at 90 minutes. This is at, this went by for, very quickly, so I really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, thanks so much for spending your Saturday morning uh, with us. We really do appreciate it, as I'm sure all our listeners do. And uh, you're absolutely as insightful to listen to as you are on your blog posts. So this has been a real treat. And of course, make sure you follow Mark on Twitter and on his blog post as well. And I would just uh, end up by saying, Mark, Morris, and me, thank you from, from Mark, Morris, and me, I should say. Thanks so much for listening. 
And we look forward to being back with you next week. And in the meantime, be well. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.